reading this evening is taken from Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Hello and good evening, St. Mary's. My name is Adam Curtis, I'm on the staff team here, and it's a joy to be with you all. And as we come to God's word, let's... uh, Bow our heads and ask for his help. Dearest God, King of kings and Lord of lords, thank you that you have poured out your spirit of wisdom and of revelation. And I ask, Father God, may your spirit lead us to yourself this day and show us your glory. In the name of Jesus. Amen. What do your eyes see when you look at the church? What do you see when you look at the church? Some people will look at the church and they will see uh, a place of friendship. Some people might look at the church and and see a place of of, of refuge and of great encouragement. Some people might look at the church and see neither of those things, but actually see disappointment seeing people who've let you down. Some people might look at the church and just be very intrigued by it. Why do these people gather and who is this God that they've, they've come to, to sing about? What do your eyes see when you see the church? Because when we look at the church in comparison to our culture, I can't help but seeing how weak it looks. We see in the, in, the, in the news, we hear it on the, the lips of our friends, this sort of wave of secularism which just seems to be washing over the nation. That, that tide of which is anti-Christian sort of sentiment just seems to be growing greater and greater. And, and in comparison to this, we have a church which seems small and weak. What do your eyes see? When you look at the church. And you fall into that negative sort of category of worrying about our situation in the world. Well, I get that. When I'm not so much managing my moods particularly well, I can fall into quite a pit 
but thinking, what's going on here? How's a church meant to answer the great questions of our age and, and be a force for good and bring life to this dying place? Secularism just seems so strong and so mighty. I get that. So what does God have to say to us today? Well, we land in the book of Ephesians. And as we land in the book of Ephesians, we land in a time, in a place, in a context where things are not going particularly well. We land in a place where internally people would see a church which is divided along ethnic lines between Greek and Jews who aren't necessarily getting on particularly well with each other. They would have looked, and externally, the church within their culture would have looked incredibly weak and pathetic, particularly compared to the national religion of the day, particularly compared to the mighty temple of Artemis. And, and compared to this mighty temple with its stonework and its gold, the church would have just looked so much like nothing. And add on top of that, their leader who's planted the church, well, where's he? Well, he's in prison, and he's far away, and he hasn't been there for ages. If anyone would have looked with their eyes, they would have seen this situation, which is just so weak and so bleak. And in the midst of this weakness and this bleakness, Paul writes to this early church. And here we have him writing his prayer for them. Why do you write and tell someone that you're praying for them? You might tell them that you're praying for them as an act of love, as it is the greatest gift that we can give, is to lift someone up in prayer. But why do you write and tell them precisely what you're praying for them? Why do you do that? And I think you write to someone and tell them the details of your prayer, because on one level you're showing them your desire for this person, but you're also showing them how it is only God who can fulfill that. And so here we have Paul praying for this early church. He's filled with thankfulness and he prays for them. Verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And what, what purpose is that for? Why, they, why, why does Paul want them to have this spirit of wisdom and revelation? So that you may know him better. You know, God couldn't know us any better than he already does. God already knows every thought, every feeling, every action, every deed. God already comprehends us to the the total and the max. God can't know us any better, but we can know God better. And it's fascinating here to think that God might pour out his spirit of wisdom and understanding, of wisdom and revelation, so that we might come to see him. And know him as our glorious father. It's fascinating to think that, that God in his might and his majesty and his power and his splendor does not want us to view him as a stranger. But wants us to know him as he is in his divine nature. And, and one can have authority and be a stranger. In his very limited way, King Charles has great authority over us, and yet he is but a stranger. But God does not want to be a stranger king. 
God wants us to know him as a glorious father. So how? How how can we know God as a glorious father? Well, the prayer continues. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Paul here is praying that they may know God as a glorious father and that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened. And that, that, that language there, the eyes of your heart, well, that's getting at this this biblical understanding of our heart is sort of the whole person. It's the driving force of a person. It's your thoughts and it's your feelings. It's your desires and it's the logic of your emotions. And so we have here Paul saying that with your heart, he wants them to gain an understanding to see. And, and he wants them to be enlightened. That language of enlightened, it sort of takes us, takes us to, to, to that moment which maybe I've experienced way too often in life, and maybe you guys are too mature, more mature than I, and, uh, and uh, that moment where you wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning, and you're bursting for the loo, <laughs> and you're just thinking to yourself, should I just try and sleep through the pain, <laughs> or should I stumble my way and find a bathroom? And I'm thinking, I can do this without the light. I don't want to have to deal with the glare of the light. And so... And this is me as a single man. I don't know what it's like if you're married. You've got someone else there. You've got to make sure you don't wake them up. But I don't want to turn on the light. So I just get out of bed and, and I'm starting to make my way blearily towards, towards where I believe the bathroom is. And boom, I hit the wall. And, and, and we need the light on, don't we? We need to be enlightened. And so we have here Paul praying that this spirit of wisdom and revelation might come so they may know the glorious Father, so the eyes of their hearts, their thoughts and their feelings, their desires and their logic might be enlightened so they might see. And what is it that Paul prays that they might see? Well, thankfully for any preacher, he prays three things. Wonderful. Verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know Firstly, the hope to which he has called you. Secondly, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And thirdly, his incomparably great power for us who believe. So firstly, Paul is praying that the spirit of wisdom and revelation might come, that their eyes might be enlightened so they may know the glorious hope which is theirs. That glorious hope which we thought of last week, which we saw in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10. That glorious hope that every moment in history is an arrow which is pointing to the day when our Lord and Saviour Jesus come, or Christ will come in his Father's glory. And he will unite everything in heaven and everything on earth together. So that there will be peace in the heavenly realms, in the global realms, in the material realms, and in our own hearts and souls. It is that hope, it is that hope which he prays that they will know. And that, that's almost like telling a soldier fighting in World War II for the Brits that VA, VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, it is coming. Victory is coming. It's almost like telling those poor children who had to be evacuated out of London during the Battle of Britain that you're going to go home because we're going to win this glorious hope of a future, of a peace which will never end because Jesus will be seated on his throne forever, is coming. So he prays that they will know this glorious hope, 
But also he prays that they might know the second, second part of that prayer, the riches of a glorious inheritance. But it's interesting here. Look down at me at verse, uh, verse 18, the second half. Whose inheritance is it? Whose inheritance? The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The riches of God's glorious inheritance. And that's quite interesting to think that, isn't it? That on that day when Jesus Christ comes in his Father's glory, that God the Father will gain an inheritance. And what is then that inheritance which he's going to be gaining? Well, it will be all his sons and his daughters, made blameless and holy, who will stand before him for the rest of time, giving him their praise and their glory. That will be his glorious inheritance. We will be his glorious inheritance. So Paul wants this church to know what they are in the Father's eyes. They are that treasured possession, that glorious inheritance. And thirdly, he wants them to understand the incomparably great power of, the, of God. And again, thankfully, luckily for any preacher, there's three elements to this incomparably great power, which we see from halfway down verse 19. The first one, that power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. God's mighty strength is seen and is demonstrated when God the Father took that stone, that rock, which is that immovable object, which is death itself, and threw it to one side so that his son, Jesus Christ, could rise from the dead. The second element to to God's mighty strength is seen in the next part of that verse. That Jesus was, was raised from the dead and, and God seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the age to come. And think about that, that Jesus' name has been placed above every name in this present age and in the age to come. When we get to that splendor of the new creation glory, we will meet many people who we may want to celebrate. But the reality is that Nelson Mandela, where you have done great deeds of reconciliation, and yet his will not be the name which we will be celebrating. Good old Queen Elizabeth II might have lived a life of wonderful service, an inspiration to us all, and yet hers will not be the name which we will be celebrating. Because there will be one name which is above every name, which will fill our minds and our hearts, because that is the name of Jesus. And God has demonstrated his mighty strength by placing Jesus above all other names. Lastly, we see God's mighty strength in the dominion of Christ. We've seen it in the resurrection of Christ, we've seen it in the ascension of Christ, but lastly, verse 22, we see it in the dominion of Christ. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. 
Where is everything situated in this image, in these verses? Look down, verse 22. Where is it situated? Everything is situated under Jesus' feet. Everything. Because that is his dominion and his power. And if Jesus Christ is sat on his throne, well, what is under his feet but his footstool? Everything in heaven, everything on earth becomes the very footstool of Jesus Christ. That is his dominion. That is his power. That is his reign. And and God has appointed Christ in his dominion to be the head over the church, where the church is his body and, and Jesus Christ is the head. And thus the head directs where the church will go and what it will be. And then we have this, this incredible few lines of verse 23, that final sentence. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And what's that, what's that line, that sentence getting at? Well, I think it's, it's getting at that idea that Jesus Christ in himself is perfection. And out of his perfection, it spills out, out of himself, perfecting everything else. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So here we have Paul's prayer that this early church may see the glorious, their glorious father. That they may know and have their, their eyes of their hearts opened and enlightened. So that they may see and understand the hope that they have in heaven. That how they are God's glorious inheritance, his incomparable strength, which is seen in the resurrection of Christ, in the ascension of Christ, in the dominion of Christ. And I think they're told all these things. They're told Paul's prayer because Paul wants them to understand his desire for this church and how he's only God who can fulfill that desire. And Paul wants this early church to look to this glorious father. With the eyes of your heart, look to this glorious Father. This early church needs to understand that there is more to reality than meets the eyes. In 2010, if you had gone to Greyfriars Car Park in Leicester, your eyes would have seen a car park. But if you'd gone there in 2011, your eyes would have seen a different sight. Because by 2011, they'd established that this was where King uh, Richard was buried. So in 2010, your eyes would see a car park, but there's more to reality than meets the eye. In 1995, 12 publishers were given a manuscript about a boy who lived under the stairs and happened to be a wizard. And all of them said, nah, this is rubbish. We're not going to publish this. Their eyes failed to see reality, that this would become a global phenomenon and a success. This early church needs to look to the glorious Father, because there is more to reality than meets the eye. Yes, in that context of Ephesians, there's so much there which is going against them. They are a weak church. They're weak internally and they're divided ethnically. They're they're weak in their culture and their moment. They're weak in comparison to the might and the glory of of the temple of Artemis. They're weak and their leader is in chains. They're the, the very definition of weakness. But they need to look beyond themselves to their glorious father. 
They need to look back to see all that he has done and all that he has won in Jesus Christ. And they need to look forward to where he is going to take them and where he is leading them. And as this early church is being encouraged to look to the glorious Father, we here in Maidenhead need to do the same. God is saying to us today, look to the glorious Father. Jesus Christ is saying to us today, look to the glorious Father. Yes, our eyes might see a world which is just turning against the church. Here in Britain, we might see the tidal wave of secularism, which just seems to be taking over. We might have that sense that that anti-Christian sentiment is just on the rise. You tell people you're a Christian, or even worse, a vicar, and some people might just look at you like you're a complete oddball, and some people actually think you're dangerous. Our eyes might, might, might see the weakness of this church, but there is more to reality than meets the eyes. We need to stop looking at the car park and see that this is the burial site of the king. We don't need to see that this manuscript is going to become a global success. We need to look with the eyes of our heart, which have been enlightened by the spirit of revelation and wisdom, and we need to see who our glorious father is. And all that he has done. And all that he has won. How do you know that someone is worth marrying? And I realize as a single guy, I probably shouldn't give anyone advice. But how do you know if someone's worth marrying? Or, or maybe put differently, if someone's trustworthy? Well, you know if they're mar- worth marrying, you know if they're trustworthy through their, I think through their hopes and through their actions. Through their words and through their actions. Through, through, through the words that they say, well... Do we share the same desires? Are they, do, do, does this person want to live the sort of life that I want to live? And is it, is it actually going to be a good life? But actually, it has to be married together with their actions. Are they someone who's trustworthy? Are they someone who's actually going to fulfill the words which they've said? Are they someone who's going to fulfill these actions? Actually, we know if someone's trustworthy. We know if someone's worth marrying because of the, of the, the, the hopes they have for the future, but also because of the actions which go with them. We know that God is someone who is trustworthy because of the actions of what he has done in the past, because of his mighty strength, how he has caused Jesus to rise from the dead, how he has placed him above every other name, and how he has given him total dominion. But also because of this glorious future which he is taking us to, this glorious future where Jesus Christ will unite everything in heaven on earth together. So in our present moment, where we just sense that that weakness of the church, let us know there is more to reality than meet the eye. And let us look to our glorious Father. Let's spend a moment just internally just meditating on God's word. And then I'll close in prayer. Oh, dearest God, King of kings and and Lord of lords, we thank you that you are the one who gives the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And we ask, Father God, may your spirit take us to yourself so that we might see you and know you. 
We ask, Father God, may it enlighten our hearts so that we might comprehend you with our feelings and with our thoughts, with our logic and with our desires. Help us, Father God, to dwell on all that you have done and to stand with great confidence. And help us, Father God, to dwell on all that you will do and help us to look forward to that day where we might see you face to face and be united with you forever. We ask all these things in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen.